So today's message is Jesus is a friend of sinners, and it's from Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. But I want to start off with, we're working our way through the story of Jesus as reported by Mark in the New Testament. Our goal is to follow Jesus, follow the leader, our master, our savior. So I have a question for you guys. Are you a friend of sinners? Do you spend time with persons who do not know Christ? whose lives may be offensive to you, and whose reputation among good people like us is an embarrassment and even a scandal. Do you love sinners? Do you care for sinners? Do you reach out to sinners and serve sinners? Are you, am I, a friend of sinners? Are you, am I, like Jesus? This text what one Bible teacher calls called this scandal of grace brought great conviction to my heart. What in your mind would be the worst kind of sinner you can imagine? Think about that. What is the worst kind of sinner you can imagine? Do you have a category in your mind? It could be that it is a type of person who would be a tyrant, someone who uses and oppresses other people. Perhaps it's a type of person who was given over to gross sexual immorality and who flaunts their passions before others and victimizes innocent people in order to gratify their lusts. Perhaps you think of the type of person who was a racist, filled with irrational hatred for his fellow man. Or a chronic liar, someone who is constantly deceiving people. Or a thief. Someone who takes away from others what belongs to them and that they need in order to live and be happy. Or a notorious notorious religious hypocrite using the sacred things of God in order to advance their own agenda or to line their own pockets. Perhaps it's the kind of person who has destroyed his or her family with addictions to drugs or alcohol. Someone who has made a shambles of his life, of of the lives of the people around them, and who selflessly bends everything around to the service of his or her addictions. Maybe you can't choose. Maybe it's all of the above. And you, you, you just picture these types of people. Do you see why that's a dangerous question? And now here's the follow up question. In certain respects, and even more dangerous than the first one, can you put a real face to such categories of sin? Did a particular type of notorious sinner stand out to you because there's someone you know personally? You might know someone in this category. Someone in your own life who embodies that sin. Are you thinking of someone like that who disgusts you? Someone that rises deep and painful emotions in you whenever you see them. Someone who when you discover them in a public place, you duck, you hide from them, from the embarrassment of even being caught in the same plot of ground as them. Well, here's the fascinating thing about this morning's passage. Many people living in the regions of Capernaum in Jesus' day would have thought that way of the man in this morning's story. There could hardly have been a more notorious, dark-hearted, and hopeless sinner in the minds of most the most pious and faithful Jewish people of Jesus' day, than Levi, otherwise known to us in Scripture by the name of Matthew, 
the tax collector. So if you're able, please stand up for the reading of God's Word. And we're reading Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. The call of Levi. Jesus went out again besides the, beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray that God will speak to us this morning through his holy word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, just giving you thanks for allowing us to gather at your church, be here, Lord, together to listen to your word, be preached. Lord, I pray, Lord, that today, Lord, we would be like your son, Jesus, Lord, be friends of sinners, that we would look at those people who are as outcasts of society, Lord, and love them and want, and want to share the good news of the gospel with them, Lord, that we would have the heart that you have, Lord. So be with us this morning, Lord, speak to us, Lord, bless this message in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So all too often I find myself thinking like a modern day Pharisee. Like one who is in Luke 18.11 who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector right there. No, I'm a super saint. And you are fortunate to have me on your team. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. How much better would it be for me, for you, to pray like the tax collector in verse 13 who said, who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No, I need to realize that I am a sinner in desperate need of the mercy of God. And and I'm a forgiven sinner only through the scandal of the amazing grace that should lead me like Jesus to be a friend of sinners. Not to isolate myself away from them, but to be a friend of them. You see, this man, as his name is Levi, would suggest to us he was a Jew. And yet, as a tax collector or a publican, he was someone who had made a living off collecting taxes from his own people for King Herod of Antipius, a king who was basically a puppet king for the Roman Empire. Levi made his livelihood by collecting taxes from his own people for a foreign Gentile oppressor. And he would have been considered a traitor to his people at the deepest level and a violator of the covenant of God that God made with them. And not only this, but because he would have collected taxes and customs on the goods that passed through the region. He made his living by collecting more than the required amount as profit, so he was taxing them to the, to the core. His line of work would have been characterized by a great deal of graft and corruption and extortion. So people highly disliked him. You may have noticed from our passage that tax collectors like Levi were placed alongside sinners. 
but they were considered to be such great sinners that they were put in a category of their own, like tax collectors and then they're sinners, like right there. No one would have thought of this man Levi as anything but a hopeless, irredeemable sinner. And had he would pro probably be thought that way at least by all, by him, even by him, Holmes, him own self. And yet this is the very man that Jesus went to and called and made into one of his most devoted followers. Someone whose friends and colleagues Jesus even allowed to gather around him and with whom he, had, he ate a meal of fellowship. So 21 centuries later, and, a little, and it's a little uncomfortable with this story, I can deny that a wonderful picture of our Lord's grace it is. Jesus is hanging out with sinners. If he would call someone like Levi to himself, and he would even welcome himself to, to that kind of people, he would hang around with like Levi and the tax collectors and the sinners, then truly no one is a, so bad of a sinner that they can't be saved by Jesus. Amen. There's hope for everyone. And this story declares good news to sinners. And there's something in me that wishes that that was the only lesson to be learned by it. But I'm convinced, convicted that it has even bigger lesson for people like me. And people who, I'm sorry to say, will look down on someone like Levi and his friends. Because we can easily, as we grow and be part of the church and we follow, try to obey God's commandments, we try to, we sometimes elevate our own good works. And it teaches me that if Jesus made it his mission to graciously go to notorious sinners and call them to himself, then we who are his followers must also reach out beyond our own comfort zone to such sinners in love as he himself did. Amen? Amen. A pretty challenging idea could be to all of us because evangelism is sometimes for us is very frightful. But think of it, brothers and sisters in Christ. We as Jesus followers bear the greatest, the most life-transforming message in the world. It's the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's as if we're walking around this world as containers. We're containing of this glorious saving message. And the thing that opens the container up and makes the life-transforming message of the gospel flow out of those who most need to hear it is a something called a relationship. We have relationships, right? If we don't allow the Lord Jesus to lead us by the hand with himself to the desperately fallen sinners in our midst who most need that message, and if we don't allow ourselves to enter into a relationship of genuine love with them, just as Jesus did, then they cannot hear the message and be saved by it. So I have been trying to allow this passage to challenge my attitude towards people in this world that I'd much rather stay away from, but I'm trying to allow it to teach me that to be more like Jesus. And I hope you'll join me in that, in that effort <clears throat> as we look at this morning's passage together. So in this text, we see Jesus, the friend of sinners, as he reaches to three particular groups of people. One, the unlikely, two, the undesirable, and three, the spiritually unhealthy. Look carefully at all the character, characters in the story and ask these two questions. With whom do I most identify? And two, am I loving and serving sinners like Jesus? So let's go to verse 13 and 14. 
Jesus calls the unlikely to follow him. Jesus again in verse 16 out beside the sea doing what he loved doing. Which was what? Teaching the word and two, calling disciples to follow him. He left the small house for a large open area where the crowds could get to him and hear him. Mark notes that the crowd kept coming. They keep coming, coming to Jesus, to him. And, they keep, and he kept on teaching, which is, he's teaching the word. He's, 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 Jesus is out among the people. He is not home locked away in hiding, but he's out there with those who need his touch and his teaching. To reach the lost, you have to be with the lost. Amen? To reach the lost, you must be with the lost. Who do you hang around with? Who are your closest friends, your co-workers? Who are you just making an intentional effort to be around in their, in their radar? Who are you establishing relationships with? And you must share the gospel with them. You have that opportunity to be evangelistic towards those who need to hear the message. Fifteen times in Mark, he summarizes Jesus' activity by the word teaching. In Mark, our Lord is a teaching and preaching machine. Verse 14, Jesus is on the move again. And he, cro and he crosses paths purposely with a tax collector named Levi. Now this is almost certainly the man we know as Matthew. His name, you know, his name means the gift of God. That's what Matthew means, the gift of God. And the one who had been a thief will now receive a gift from God and become a gift of God to the people he had taken advantage of. Isn't how God just changes things? What a transformation. Now, why would I call him a thief? Tax collectors were notorious in the day and hated by the Jewish people as traitors and abusers of their own flesh and blood. They were a, like a mafia-like organization in the first century that exploited others. I mean, they're exploiting families right here. They're taking from them when they can't even, you know, feed their family. And they're just being extortioners. They served Rome, the Gentile occupying power of Israel. That's who was ruling at that time. They were dishonest IRS agents who overcharged the people for their own profit. The Jewish writings known as the Mishnah and the Talmud set them beside thieves and murderers. They were so despised and loathed. They were expelled and banned from the synagogue. They could not come and, and gather with the Jews. They were all an embarrassment and a disgrace to their families. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews could lie to a tax collector, tax collector without impunity. Merciless extortioners, these lackeys of Rome and Herods were quoted by Kent Hughes as despicable venom, the lowest of the low. With money as their God, Levi was a social leper. Last week we learned about the leper, I mean, uh, not a few weeks ago we learned about the leper who was, but he, this guy was a social leper who was spiritually bankrupt, having sold his soul to sin and to himself, to self. His was a soul in need of a touch from Jesus. So with amazing brevity and a shocking scene unfolds, Jesus and sees this man named Levi and he's working, he's doing his thing, you know, he's taxing people. Levi is a tax collector, he's in his booth, and he's the IRS agent, and he says to Levi, follow me. 
And Levi, what does he do? He gets up and he follows him. By calling Levi to follow him, Jesus once more commits a scandalous and unthinkable act. It would rival his touching a leper, and he already did that. In neither situation does he yield to social pressure and expectation. He came to call sinners to himself and call sin and, and call sinners he would. That was his mission. That was why he came to this earth. And it says in Luke 5, 28, he informs us that Levi left everything and followed Jesus. Levi counted the cost. He took the risk and followed Jesus. This was a decisive act, a radical decision. He gave up his lucrative business and all of his stuff, and there was no going back. He turned his back to his former way of life for a completely new one. Jesus can come and transform and change our lives. Has he not changed our lives? Levi saw something in Jesus, and Jesus saw something in Levi. That could, that he could, and he would become. Jesus saw a sinner in need of salvation, not a low life deserving condemnation. Jesus saw not the wicked life of the tax collector and extortioner, but the changed life of a disciple, an evangelist, an apostle, and a gospel writer. Think about it. Tax collector, extortioner to a disciple, evangelist, apostle, gospel writer. It's a 180 degree repent and change type of life. Jesus looked past what Levi was to what he would become. That's the scandal of grace. Jesus sees in us the unlikely, what no one else can see, and he's all made possible by his scandalous grace and the fact that he is the friend of sinners. So Jesus calls the unlikely. I'm so glad he does that. Maybe we're unlikely. We were one of his unlikely. Jesus calls the undesirable to follow him. The undesirable. And it says in verse 15, the day of salvation should be a day of celebration. It rightly should be the time to throw a party. Verse 15 changes the scene. Now we find ourselves in a house, probably Levi's, sharing a meal and having a good time. Levi had invited a large number of friends and acquaintances over to the house to eat and meet Jesus. And it says that it was a great feast or a banquet. Levi must have owned a large home to accommodate all those types of people there. So what, what's, the, what's the deal with this party? What's the deal with this celebration? Perhaps it was a farewell party. Perhaps it was to celebrate his new life and calling. But no doubt it was to honor Jesus. And no doubt it was to share Jesus with his friends. Think about it. When you reach out to someone who's a sinner, who has an influence of people, then you influence the rest of the people there. And Jesus was influencing all of them. Interestingly, interestingly, though, it is probably the home of Levi, and rather a large home at, the, at that note many tax collectors and sinners are there. And it is Jesus who serves as the host. Those present were rendering, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now the term sinners may be a technical term for the common people who did not live by the rigid and legalistic rules of the Pharisees. And we'll talk more about what are the Pharisees later on. It means the, the alienated and rejected, those who need God's grace and they knew it. Because there's those people who, they're out there in our, in our community who they know they're sinners and they know that they've broken God's command. They know they're not right with God. I was talking to a coworker and she says, I'm not going to be a Christian because I'm not going to act 
to try to be something that I'm not. So she'd rather just like live her life the way she is and not be, claim to be a Christian. But she knows that she's a sinner. And I mean, we all know that we're sinners. And those who are in, in the midst of those things, they know it themselves. And they were, they were doubt stunned that the young famous rabbi would share table fellowship with them and would hang out with them. Sometimes you just need to hang out with sinners. They were amazed and the religious hypocrites were angered. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing with those sinners, with those tax collectors? You should not be seen alongside with them because they're unclean. They're vile. Now, before we depart from that picture, let me ask a question. Why is it that the sinful people of our world today prefer to stay away from Christians like us and churches like ours? And yet the sinful people of Jesus' day seem to be drawn to be with him. They don't often feel very uncomfortable. They, they often feel very uncomfortable around us. Sometimes when non-Christians come, they feel uncomfortable around you guys, around us. And around Jesus, they did not. Why? Could it be that they knew that they were loved by him because he took the initiative first to draw closer to them? we got to draw close to them and establish that relationship with people who are outcasts, who people would not want to speak and be around them. Jesus in this event tells us the Messiah calls and eats with sinners. Extending forgiveness to all who, who would follow him. The meal itself was something of a foreshadowing and an anticipation of the great messi messianic banquet at the end of the age where we will celebrate what Revelation 19.9 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb where persons from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the unlikely and the undesirable will have an experience, will have experienced this scandalous grace and will recline with the King Jesus at the great banquet that will never end. And that's what we long for and we look forward to in the future. Jesus calls the unhealthy to follow him. So the unlikely, the undesirable, and the unhealthy. To follow him in verse 2 16 through 17 verse 16 he says we are introduced to a group that is not happy with what Jesus is doing and who will he and who will consequently or consistently oppose Jesus throughout his ministry all the way to the cross and Mark calls them the scribes of the Pharisees not all Pharisees were scribes though most were most likely they were outside the home looking through the windows and the open door. They're being chismosos. <laughs> They're being uh, looky lukes. They did not like what they saw and what they heard. They interrogate the disciples of Jesus. So they don't go to Jesus. They go to his disciples, probably the four, which were Simon, Andrew, James, and John. As to why he would stoop and lower himself to eat, to have table fellowship with undesirable like tax collectors and common sinners who do not follow the religious tradition, the rules and the regulations that they do themselves. Now, before we see the answer Jesus gives, there is another question begging an answer. Just who are the Pharisees and why was Jesus always in conflict with them? Why is he always in conflict with the Pharisees? Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the pious Jews who rigorously followed the law of Moses and opposed Greek influence on Jewish culture and 
religion. Josephus claims that they, they numbered about 6,000 in Jesus' day. That's a lot of people. While the Sadducees were mostly upper class aristocrats and priests, the Pharisees appear to have been primarily middle class, lay people, perhaps craftsmen and merchants. The Sadducees had greater political power, but the Pharisees had a broader support among the people. They were more involved in the synagogue communities. And the most distinctive characteristic of the Pharisees was that their strict adherence to the law of Moses. The Torah, in other words, you've heard. The Torah, and not only the written law, but also the oral law. A body of extra-biblical traditions which expanded and elaborated on the Old Testament law. And they're like the traditions of the elders. The Pharisees' goals were twofold. What were their twofold goals? One, to apply Torah's mandates to everyday life. How does it apply to your life? And two, to build a fence. They would build a fence around the Torah to guard against any possible violation. Hands and utensils had to be properly washed. Food had to be properly grown, tidied, and prepared. Only certain clothing could be worn. Since ritual purity was so important to them, the Pharisees refused to share table fellowship with those who ignored these matters. The common people of the land were often shunned. Gentiles were clearly on their outcasts or they're on their hit list. They didn't want to even be seen near them. So the term Pharisee is probably derived from a Hebrew word, the separis, and was applied to them because of the of the dietary and purity laws which restricted table fellowship with the common people and with non-Jews. So they were wanting to be separated. They didn't, they, that's the goal, was to be separate. In contrast to the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and steered a middle road between the Sadducees' belief of free will and the predestination determinism of the Essenes. And, the, and this, they also culminate, cultivated a strong hope in the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, who would deliver them from foreign oppression. This made them anti-Roman, but, less, but with less inclination to active resistance than the zealots and other revolutionists at that time. Jesus came into frequent contact with the, uh, frequent conflict with the Pharisees. They were always going clashing. He condemned them for raising their traditions, their traditions to the level of Scripture, and for focusing on the outward requirements of the law while ignoring the matters of the heart. For their part, the separatist Pharisees opposed and attacked Jesus' association with tax collectors and with sinners and, and, they, and, they, and the way he placed himself above the Sabbath regulations. So despite these differences, Jesus was much closer theologically to the Pharisees than he was to the Sadducees, and he was sharing similar beliefs in the authority of Scripture, the future resurrection, and the coming of the Messiah. His frequent conflicts arose because he challenged them on their own turf, because he was viewed as a threat to their leadership and influence over the people. So Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees at that time. And today the term Pharisee is often equated with hypocrisy, and a legalistic spirit. We call each other Pharisees if you're a legalist, right? That's what you guys say to one another. We say to one another. But this would not have been the view of most people in the first century Israel. They generally respected the Pharisees for their piety and devotion to the law. 
and held him in high esteem. Indeed, the Pharisees' fundamental goal was to be was a noble one. They had a noble goal to maintain a life of purity and obedience to God's law. So the Old Testament law forbids work on the Sabbath, but it gives few details. It says, just provides working on the Sabbath, but it gives few details. And the rabbis therefore specify and discuss 39 categories of forbidden activities, they say, for the Sabbath. So while not tying is unlawful, certain knots, like those which can be tied with one hand, are allowed. A bucket may be tied over a well on the Sabbath, but only with a belt, not a rope. While such minute may seem odd and arbitrary to us today, the Pharisees' goal was not to be legalistic, but to place, but to please God through obedience to His law. Today, it is unlawful to push an elevator button on the Sabbath, but you may walk up the stairs if necessary. Jesus criticized the Pharisees not for their goals of purity and obedience, but for their hypocrisy. He accused them of saying one thing but doing another, of raising their interpretations, which are traditions of men, to the level of God's commandments, and of becoming obsessed with external while neglecting the more important things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They strain out a knot, but they swallow a camel, it says in Matthew 23. Amazingly, in their religious zeal, they had, a, they had separated themselves both from others, or well, they separated themselves from others and from God. Of course, such a hip, hypocrisy is not unique to the Pharisees, but is common in all religious traditions, including ours. It is easy to follow the form or the religion, and to miss its substance. Jesus hears the questions and the implied criticism of the Pharisees. He responds with a well-known proverb, as well as a statement that explains his mission and justifies his actions. So what did he say? He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus uses a common sense proverb even his opponents would agree with. And in the process, he uses irony to expose the hypocrisy of his detractors, of his accusers. Now, could you imagine going to a physician and asking him or her why they're always hanging around sick people? Imagine that? How silly, right? Of course they're always with sick people. It's sick people that need to see them the most. A physician would be irresponsible if they only made sure they hung around with healthy people, right? So the Pharisees, the religiously moral and upright, they, they were just as needy of a spiritual doctor, healing and medicine as the tax collectors and the wicked. Sadly, they did not recognize they too had a spiritually terminal disease that only the great physician named Jesus could heal. So in essence, Jesus says, to those who think they are righteous, I have nothing to say. To those who know they are sinners in need of salvation, to these I have come to heal and call to myself. 
You must see yourself as lost before you can see you can be saved. You must know you are spiritually sick before you can be spiritually healed. You must know you are spiritually dead before you can be made spiritually alive by a Savior. Amen? Yes. So, I want to ask some questions before I wrap this message up. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about God, the call of Levi, the Matthew, the tax collector, and Jesus hanging out with sinners? It says, He sent Jesus to save sinners of all types. God sent Jesus on a mission to call sinners to salvation. That's what it teaches us about God. What does this teach this text teach me about sinful humanity? That we are easily seduced by legalism and we're self-righteous. What does this text teach me about Jesus Christ? That he loves sinners, that he calls sinners, and that he saves sinners. Amen? What, is the, what does God want me to know? No one is too good or too bad to be saved. No one is too bad to be saved. And no one is so good that they do not need to be saved. Unless I realize that I am a sin, sick sinner, I cannot be saved. So what does God want me to do? What does he want me to do? To love sinners like he does. To befriend sinners and spend time with them. Let's make it an intentional thing in our lives. To reach out to them and be with them. And so Jesus was a friend of sinners. He reached out to the undesirable. He called the unlikely. And he healed the spiritually unhealthy. He cared for them. He spent time with them. He loved them. If this is true of our master, then it should be also true of us. Would it? Should it not? So I want to encourage you guys today to pray about who is it that God would want me to hang around, establish a relationship, reach out to, even if you have nothing in common with them. And even if they're outcasts in society and, you know, people would be like, ooh, you're hanging around with him? Aren't you a Christian? Why are you with so-and-so? But that's the sick need a physician. The sin, the, the people who are sick need to be healed. So you should be around people who need to hear Jesus and, and that way you can be salt and light and you can be used by God to reach to them and they would know Christ and that they would come to Christ and be saved. So let's pray that today we would um, be used by God to be reaching out to people who need to hear the gospel message of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, use us, Lord, as your vessels, Lord, that we would be evangelists or that we would be like Jesus, Lord, wanting to reach out to people who are sinners, and we ourselves were sinners, are sinners, Lord. And Lord, <clears throat> I pray, Lord, that we would be used by you, Lord, to reach out and to just be an extension of your love, Lord, to those, Lord, who need to feel your love and know your love, Lord. So use us, Lord, for your glory, Lord, and put in our path, Lord, people, Lord, who we may establish that relationship and share this amazing good news of the Savior who came to seek and save the lost and died on the cross for them, Lord. So we pray all this in your son's Jesus' mighty name. Amen.